You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. Could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Wheeler. Oh, what a goal from Noel Wheeler. No power on it whatsoever, but Taibi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Tony oh, Hatton. No. Hello and welcome back to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score, the 90s football show. I'm Chris Skoll, joining me Josh Widdicombe. Hello. Michael's Game of Championship Manager is still set to manage a holiday. (laughs) He will be back imminently. Did you ever do manage a holiday? I never did it because you sign players you don't want to sign. You apply for jobs you don't want to apply for. Why is there such a big gap between... What you who, think the team should be? Who would apply be? for someone else's holiday on job on a holiday? <laughs> I've never gone on holiday is... from work and <laughs> someone's applied for a different job for me and accepted it on your behalf. Yeah, and accepted it for me on my behalf. I always think it's when you go on a holiday, your, your assistant manager picks a completely different team Mad and tries team. out a new formation. Yeah, that would never happen. Why are we, we're doing really well? We've been playing this really thin, unlikely formation that works well on the just this game. Why would you break a winning formula to play a boring 4-4-2 with players that I've got on the transfer list? Clearly he's on the transfer list, doesn't played all season. It's madness. Yeah. Sorry, just some things that have been brought up. <laughs> anyway. It was a weird feature because is it for if you're playing two-player, then one of you can go on holiday? Is that what it is? I would... Because uh... what's the advantage of it otherwise? If you want to stop playing... Just save the game and leave. You don't need to leave. You're not playing real time. <laughs> I I think uh, I, when I think about when I've used it, I think I've, if I've just been an international manager, I may skip out months where there's no England games, for example, or whatever country I'm managing. Yeah. On the rare occasion. Yeah, I suppose if you're not the England manager. But then if you're the England manager, before you know it, you take manager holiday and you've applied for the Rochdale <laughs> job. And you've accepted it. Now Ex- you've got to- <laughs> accepted it. Now you're doing it. <laughs> Now you're on holiday from the Rochdale job, <laughs> applying for other jobs. And you spread yourself way too thin. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to Quickly, Kevin. <laughs> um, Stuart Pearce. Stuart Pearce this week. We will go we'll into, get into it. Yeah. A, we really enjoyed the interview, but B, the story attached to it, we will go into it because it was a, 
It was a memorable day. It was in definitely one of the most traumatic hours of my life. I'd say the bit during the interview is the least traumatising <laughs> of the... It's the half hour before it that was the worst. <laughs> but we'll get into that. Firstly, let's have a bit of correspondence. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. Right. This is from uh, Visiting Footballers' Houses. Okay, this is from Daniel Goldberg. In 1999, I was a mere 12 years old and going through the upheaval and trauma of moving house. Inconsolable at the thought of moving away from my friends and everyone I knew, took a lot of reassurance to convince me that two miles away from my old house wasn't really that far. After a few weeks of settling in, as expected, we started building up a collection of posts from the old inhabitants. Imagine my surprise when, a quick glance, I recognised the name on some of the posts. The various Scandinavian fashion and lifestyle magazines and catalogues were intended for none other than Alan Nielsen. <laughs> the last thing Ethel Skinner ever saw. The last man Ethel Skinner ever saw. <laughs> As a Spurs fan, I was obviously overjoyed to learn that I had a connection to a legend who had only two months earlier scored the cup-winning goal for Spurs in the League Cup final. These days, we rarely get post trim, thanks to companies cutting down on drunk mail and GDPR. (laughs) (laughs) But last week, we received this invite to the Danish YWCA Christmas Market. As far as I can tell from the attached flyer, the selling point of the market is two Borg and hot dogs. (laughs) How long since Alan Nielsen left that house? And um, why are they flyering internationally for a Danish... No, there'll be a Danish Christmas market in the UK. Oh, right. Would you go? I think it's... If if the chance of Alan Nielsen... Be honest, if you were getting Alan Nielsen's post, would you open it? Yeah. What would be the juiciest thing you could get? Uh, A pay slip that had, like, a slip that looked like a pay slip with the Tottenham logo branded on the envelope (laughs) would be the juiciest thing you could get, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or an invite to a a League Cup team reunion. (laughs) (laughs) And then you could turn up in person. (laughs) Dressed as Alan Nielsen. Nielsen. (laughs) You would pull Alan Nielsen care. (laughs) (laughs) What if you could pull that off for an evening? No. Uh, that Spurs team had a lot of players who looked very similar. Was it Alan Nielsen, Stefan Freud? Who was the uh, striker? Stefan Everson. All all Scandinavian players yeah, with short hair. Stefan Freund was German, but yeah, I know they what you mean. Like, yeah, yeah. They all look the same with similar Are you names. If you turned up at the re- reunion. <laughs> Stefan Everson and Alan Nielsen could pretend to be the each other. other. <laughs> they could go on two separate dates as each other. <laughs> Do you know when you're in uh, in school in primary school, you used to answer yes to the other person's name and the uh, yeah and the register. Like, do you think well, Nielsen and Everson did that all the time? <laughs> um, Christian Gross shaking his fist, fuming at the chalkboard. We should say we didn't expect to get two Alan Nielsen emails. So if you've got anything more, hello, quickly, Kevin on Alan Nielsen or Ethel Skinner Skinner's relationship with Alan Nielsen. <laughs> of course, James Jeffries. This has got the very promising title. My old teacher was also a football scout. <laughs> We had that at my school. We had a guy who worked for Talkie United, who was a football, uh, who was also a technology teacher. Well, that's how Gary Neville got spotted. He said his teacher oh, wrote yeah. a letter to the club. Hi, team. 
I know that football scouts are now fairly high-profile and full-time jobs, but there was a time when that wasn't the case. Whilst at school in the mid to late 90s, there was a teacher at my school, Pat Francis, who was also a part-time football scout. During my time at school, he was a scout for Spurs, Blackburn and then Leeds, specifically, specifically covering the southeast of England. There are two stories that stand out. The first one is when he was a Spurs scout and they wanted to sign a young Quentin Fortune. At the time, he was only 16 years old, so getting a work permit was challenging. Not for old Pat Francis, it wasn't. <laughs> Quentin Fortune came to our school for a year as a pupil. What? <laughs> During that year, our school won the National Schools Championship uh, with Quentin playing in central midfield. <laughs> How old would Quentin have been? 16. 16. Yeah, so he, saw, he got him into the school in an attempt to get him a work permit. <laughs> then Quentin Fortune absolutely destroyed everyone <laughs> in the school's cup. <laughs> Obviously, that's alleged by um, Jim Jeffrey, James Jeffries. Because um, I, I, he didn't sign for Spurs in the end. So then did Man U get... No, Man U got him when he was older, didn't they? Did they? Yeah, I think but that, so. that's, like the, the thing about like players like that, we've talked about it before, like Simon Davies being an unbelievable... Quentin Fortune was a very average <laughs> yeah, player. he wasn't very good. And like he won everything for the school on his own, it seems like. Yeah, but that's because he is still Quentin Fortune. <laughs> This is my favourite, though. The second story was when he was a Blackburn scout and was covering a geography class. Midway through the lesson, he asked if there were any football fans in the room. Me and a few friends raised our hands in excitement as to what his next question would be. We couldn't believe what happened next. He asked us if we knew of any good left-backs that would be worthwhile him scouting for Blackburn as they were on the lookout. <laughs> is that how it works? <laughs> Considering my knowledge was almost exclusively based on championship manager, or football manager as they call it, I frantically thought of any good left-backs on the game that I had bought and came up with the name Darren Barnard of Barnsley fame. Pat wrote his name down and subsequently went to scout him. He came to me a few weeks later with his feedback absolutely awful. (laughs) (laughs) Is that how it works? That's how it works. Imagine being a scout and that desperate and asking geography class you were covering. I know offence to Darren Bernard, but if you were thinking of signing for Blackburn, that's where it all went wrong. Uh, if you had any scouts working at a school, or you have any stories on Alan Nielsen or anything you want to tell us... One slight request. I love stories about being in school with players who who went on to become professional footballers. Yes. If you went to school with a professional footballer... And we are ready to eat that story up. How good were they? Yeah. Did they win everything on their own? Were, <laughs> were they really rubbish and became good? A la Paul Scholes. Um, here's how you can get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Okay, now, how shall we do this? I think... Let's we begin with how the day started. So we were lucky enough to have Stuart Pearce agree to appear on this podcast. He was part of the coaching staff at West Ham at the time. So we went to... So you do some work for West Ham. Do a bit of work for West Ham. And you managed to talk them into getting an hour of our time with Stuart Pearce. A one hour slot with Stuart Pearce if we went to the training ground. On a weekday lunchtime. On a weekday lunchtime. So down we go to Rush Green, West Ham's training ground. Um, the interview's due to start at half one. We get there about kind of quarter past one. And as I'm pulling into the car park, uh, get a phone call to say, Stuart Pierce is ready and he'd like to go now. <laughs> 
He doesn't want to wait around. There's a big game at the weekend. He just wants to get in and Which out. Which isn't how it works when you're meeting someone. If you're meeting someone for a date and they go, I'll meet you at 7, you can't go, I'm here at 6.45 and you're not here and it's quite rude. <laughs> But obviously, Stuart Pearce has the upper hand in this situation. Yes. So what did you say? You'd travelled alone earlier. So yeah. me and Michael at this point are still in the taxi. Do you know what? Actually, now I think about it, I think I'd arrived at one, interview should due to start half one, and he's telling me at one he wants to start. And I think you and Michael aren't there yet. So immediately on the back foot, straight away, yeah. Pearce, he's, he's getting angsty. He wants to yeah. start. The well, interview. we haven't met him yet. Haven't met him yet. I'm just getting word that he's he wants uh, he wants to go. Training's finished early. Yeah, and he's he's eaten. He's ready. He's what he's waiting. By the way, one of the reasons he wanted to go was because they were preparing for a game against Man City at yeah, the weekend. That's right. yeah. And I'm just going to say it. That is not a big game. You were always going to lose. <laughs> so Josh and Michael arrive, and we realise very quickly that we don't have any... We're missing some crucial parts of equipment, namely yeah. a power source. <laughs> We'd lost the power lead, right? <laughs> so we brought our case of podcast recording equipment, lost the power lead. Look at your body language, oh, even disgusting. holding it. my face. So we... So a, we, as we're discovering this, Stuart Pierce walks in because he's sick of waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so we're dealing with well, a dual crisis. Clear, just so people can picture it... <laughs> It is the room where they do the... You know the manager press conferences you see on, like, a Friday on Sky Sports News? Yeah. It's there. And there's no table we can all sit around. So what we've had to do is there's the long table the manager sits around where all the dictaphones go on. And we've had to sit, the four of us, our chairs, around the end of that table. Yeah. So the table is about six inches thin. So we're basically all crowded around one corner of a tiny little table, ready to go. And we've got the twin crisis of Stuart Pearce being early, having only given us a one hour of his time, and us having lost the power lead. So, I mean, Stuart Pearce not exactly known for his patience and having a long fuse. No. So we're dealing with the dual crisis of having to placate Stuart Pearce, keep him there, but also solve the fact we don't have any power for... Our equipment. And there then, was also a point when I was like, "Should we just record it on our phones at this point?" Yeah, I think we just even if the even if we weren't actually recording it, I was prepared yeah. just so we could get out of the room without. Oh, what well, you were you without, were without you him were beating up at us one up? Point for just faking the interview in the knowledge he would have never listened back for it, in the hope that we'd get out of the room alive. Imagine if we'd done that and he'd come out with some real truths. Oh man, it was. But I think. All this tension manifests itself in having to make small talk with Stuart Pearce. Well, you Pierce. two go off to look for a lead. Yeah, we eventually find some So batteries. I'm just left one-on-one with Stuart Pearce. How was that small talk? It was fine. He's a very, very nice man. Like, he's one of the politest... You know when you say someone's well brought up? That kind of... Yeah. Kind of... He's very polite, very nice. Uh, I asked him about... Um, I think Jürgen, it was the weekend after Liverpool v West Brom. Do you remember when Jürgen Klopp was complaining about the um, the pitch being watered or not watered? I can't remember what way it was. And um, it was that weekend. I asked him about that and he, he wasn't a big fan of the way Klopp had dealt with it. That was bad because I'd gone in with, Jürgen Klopp seems like a nice bloke because my opener. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. It was fine. It was fine. Eventually... Uh- 
Yeah. Where did you get a lead from? Well, no, actually, we've got to thank Ben Campbell at West Ham, who came through with some batteries for us to have our backup <laughs> recording equipment. Yeah, it was quite as... annoying because uh, David Moyes didn't get to use the TV remote with lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Stuck on repeats of Neighbours. But yeah. um, the interview was lovely. It began and it was lovely. And uh, he, he went straight out after for a, for a little tactical debrief. And uh, he was th- the relief really was palpable. Nice, but the... Half hour before, it was one of the tensest half hours of my life. The other thing to say is, like, we, you know quickly, Kevin, hopefully if you listen, we like to be flippant. We like to open with a silly question. So we are open with a spot, the, the shirt sponsor question. As I was asking it, I nearly fell to pieces. <laughs> the tension of the previous half hour combined with sitting with a legend and asking him a question that is intentionally stupid... <laughs> And uh, he reacted quite well. But anyway, I think that's enough introduction, isn't it? This is Stuart Pearce. With 15 minutes gone, and Stuart Pearce is always a danger here. Oh, it's in! What a splendid shot by the Forest captain to give Brian Clough's team the lead in the cup final. Our guest this week is one of the iconic players of the 90s, club captain and Nottingham Forest legend, scorer of one of the great FA Cup final goals. He won 78 caps for England, 10 of them as captain, played at Italia 90, Euro 92, Euro 96. It's our absolute pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Stuart Pearce. How are you? Okay? Yeah, good. good. How are you? Yeah, top form. I was worried, coming off the training pitch, I was worried you might be too pumped up. Are you all right? Are you feeling... No, it's, it's, not, it's not my job to be pumped up. <laughs> it's my job on the training pitch to be calm and sedate and give advice now. <laughs> okay. Do you enjoy that more? Um, nothing replicates playing the game. There's yeah. no doubt about that. But um, it, it's nice when you, you can help others give advice, give guidance and then see it bear out on match day and see the player get a benefit. That's the yeah. buzz of being a coach, I think. Yeah. Um, so we always ask a standard first question and it feels a bit churlish with such a legend, a legend as yourself, but what are what are your sponsors, what were your sponsors in the 90s, can you remember, on all your club, on your shirts? Uh, well, we... <laughs> I... Shipstons, correct. As in across the yeah, front across of the shirt. front. Yeah. What was Shipstons? Brewery. Oh yeah. Shipstons Brewery. Uh, maybe Panasonic when I first got to West uh, to Nottingham Forest. Glazetta. No, I don't know. Talon. These were Coventry, by the oh, way. Oh really? Oh wow. Glazetta and Talon were what, two. What were they? No idea. <laughs> I, I really don't know. That was their um, skull. Might have been on. Yeah. Nottingham yeah. Forest potentially when I first got there. Uh, Labatt's 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 was on um, quite a lot of beer brands did you get much free beer back then Uh, no we paid for everything (laughs) (laughs) you know in case the tax man's listening we paid for everything (laughs) and we paid a touch more over the odds in fact I'm too a yeah that was that Newcastle we had Newcastle Brown Ale as well Newcastle Brown Ale there Uh, West Ham I'm trying to think who who was West Ham's sponsors I Footwear, you might have had a, you might have worn them to a gig at one point. Oh, Dr. Martins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Did you get a free pair yeah. of Dr. Martins? No, they, they weren't forthcoming, sadly enough. <laughs> no, no. Um, the money I put into Dr. Martins as a kid as well was unbelievable. <laughs> I was due a few freebies. <laughs> so you, you started in, not, you had 176 games for Wealdstone in non league football. 242, 242, actually, if you include cup games, yeah. Yeah. So. How much better were you? are a man who ended up playing 78 games for England. Mm. How much better were you than the rest of the 
players at that level? Was it clear that you stood out, or did no, you? No, no, it um, wasn't. Um, to be honest with you, when I when I left school, I had nowhere to go and play football, so I just went down to my local club, and I was fortunate. After the first, the end of the first season, a lot of the the games backlogged, so we were sort of had four games a week at Wildstone. So uh, oh, the first team, well, no, the first team had to dip down and pick pick a kid out to fill oh. the team out because the senior pros couldn't take time off work. Oh, right. For me, I was on the up, and it yeah, was yeah. a real honour. So. That broke into the team at the end of the first year, and we, I rarely got injured, and we played maybe sixty odd games a year or whatever. So I was there five and a half seasons. So. Um, and did you think? Were you thinking about turning pro? I had like? I had trials at Hull City and played for Hull City reserves when I was seventeen. Myself and the club captain at Wildstone went up to Hull. We had three days training and we played Grimsby in a two-two friendly uh, reserve fixture. Um, I was offered a. Uh, a contract at Hull, also a job on the council as an electrician to carry on oh, my yeah. apprenticeship, but just seemed a long way from home as a 17-year-old, yeah. so I turned that down and then really there was a little bit of speculation now and then. Uh, Harry Bassett didn't want to pay the 25 grand, he said he's offered five grand for me <laughs> and I, I went and trained with Wimbledon once when I was recovering from injuries of our links with Wimbledon. Um, and he told me to go to the club and tell him I wanted to leave for five grand, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so that never happened. He, he always tells the story he got Winterburn instead, you know what I mean, instead of me. Um, Makes you feel valued, doesn't it? It does, yeah. You've always got to have another one up your sleeve. It, it, I took that into management with me, you know. Um, and then from there, basically, played at Yeovil one evening. Um, one of the, As we were lining up to go out the... Uh, out on the pitch as, as a non-league player, um, one of the senior pros said to me, uh, "Coventry are here to watch you." And to be fair, Bobby Gould says that uh, takes the story up. He said that he said to his wife Marge, "Come on, we're going to Yeovil tonight to watch a left back." <laughs> uh, he watched about 40 minutes. I launched the full back into his wife's lap about seven rows back. He <laughs> gave her a nudge and went, "He'll do us." <laughs> and he signed me on Monday. So that was, that was that. What was Bobby Gould like? Um, well, he was a hometown boy of Coventry, you know yeah. what I mean? So he was managing the club. I mean, when I first got there and I was signed in the September, the team were about fourth in the, in the top division, you know? My second game, we beat Liverpool 4-0 at home, you know? Um, so That's a hell of a jump from... Yeah, it was. I was fortunate. I played one game and played in the reserves and uh, John Sillett was the manager at yeah. the time. And he said to a friend... Um, that knew me, he said he'll play for England one day after watching me once in the reserves. Amazing wow. when you look back over yeah. statements like that. You yeah. know. How um, was the step up? Was it, was it like a massive step up? The training was hard for me, I've got to say. Um, full-time training I found physically quite hard from what I was used to, two, two nights a week and a match on Saturday, you know. Um, but I, I think it's like everything. When I look back now, I probably took to it really well. Um, at the time, you, I, I went to Coventry with less than a two-year contract, yeah. having to pack my job on the council in as an electrician. So you never know. Look, will this work out for me? Will it not? Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise, in two years' time, I could have been back unemployed. You know, yeah. albeit with a trade, but unemployed. And to be fair, it just it just rolled and rolled, and I, I think well, it was the fear factor of going back to to working and yeah. not making it that drove me in many ways. When you went to Forest, you advertised your electrical, 
electrician firm in the program. I did, yeah. I mean, we um, when I was at Coventry, I started up my own company. Um, yeah. So I was sort of trading then. And when I joined Cluffy at Forest, I said to him when we first met, I said, look, do you mind, I'm an electrician by trade, do you mind if I still work in the afternoons? He said, no, no problem at all, as long as you bend my kettle. You know what I mean? So, um, he needed a new element, so he wouldn't accept I was an electrician because I told him the new element would probably cost more than a new kettle. So, <laughs> had a bit of a standoff on his kettle, but that, that was that. Um, and then I advertised in the programme, put an advert in the programme, had a, a, a private business line in my house for electrical work and traded for probably two years. So I traded near enough, a couple of years at Coventry, working in mm. the afternoons, and traded a couple of years at Nottingham Forest until probably the football got a little bit too serious then, if you like, yeah. and got involved in the England squad and stuff like that. So your last job, like doing electrical work, do you remember it? My, did, did you know it'd be the last one? No, no, I did not. I was hoping to keep trading right through my whole career, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. I mean, it, it's amazing when you, you consider the sort of riches and the, and the, the finance that is involved in football now. Uh, and we talk and have a mentality, look, how, how could you be doing that yeah. you know, back then? But bear in mind, I had a mortgage to pay. Yeah. Um, I took a cut in wages as an electrician and a non-league player. I was earning £280 in my hand doing both. Yeah. Um, I was offered a wage cut to turn pro in the highest league in the country. So wow. th there's a difference. I was offered £250, there's the door, take it or leave it. So when yeah. you've just packed your job in on the council four days earlier, you're a little compromised, you know. Yeah. So that, that, that's... When you consider an electrician and a part-time footballer was earning more than somebody who was playing against That's Liverpool amazing. three, four weeks later. Did any other players have trades or like? Um, quite a few had come from a working background before. Yeah. Trevor Peake was at Coventry. I think he was a, a, an engineer. Um, you know, Mickey Adams and Nicky Plattner, they bought themselves a flatbed lorry and was doing garden clearances in the afternoon. <laughs> um, everyone was lending their hand to something or other. Yeah. So there was a lot that come from sort of the non-league setup, yeah. if you like, that yeah. come in the tough way, um, which you could almost see in their training and their mentality to professional football in many ways. Did you, did you ever employ a teammate as like a labourer for the day? Brian Rice, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd done a wider mate of mine's house in, uh, in Leamington and it was so difficult feeding the wires through the loft, I, I paid him 50 quid a day. <laughs> uh, Amazing. Yeah. Um, so then when you moved to Forest, obviously Brian Clough is quite a kind of, he, a huge figure in your career. Mm. And there's kind of, I've read that you said that you prefer to have criticism than praise. Mm. And Clough seems to be the kind of king of that as a manager. I, I, where he was good, I think the stories go and the stories get perpetuated about how it was full of criticism, but he was really clever in knowing when to pick you up with yeah. a lift and the right words. I think he was he was probably one of football's early psychologists. You yeah. know, people say that about Bill Shankly, but I think good managers are good man managers and yeah. good psychologists as well. Cluffy was very good at that. Fantastic. Yeah. When you were on a high, he'd bring you crashing back down, you know. Um, Didn't he say you were rubbish after your first England game? No, I, I got picked in the England squad, um, went into training the following day. One of the apprentices come down into the dressing room said the manager wants to see you. I walked into his office and the conversation went word for word, apart from the expletives. I see you're in the England squad, yes boss. Um, do you think you're good enough? I don't know. I don't. F off. <laughs> 
that was a conversation. Now, wow. it was great inspiration because I yeah. was scared as a kitten joining up with England. Yeah. Mind. My first game would have been Brazil at home and you think, am I good enough and, and whatever. But it was a great leveller for me. Basically, from his point of view, he was delivering, look, probably, A, I don't think you're good enough and B, uh, keep your feet on the floor. From my yeah. point of view, I, I almost had something to prove at yeah. that stage. Uh, it's fantastic motivation for me. And you're obviously you're kind of synonymous with your pride for playing for England. Mm. So that first time you turn mm. up in the England squad, were you, I mean, were you scared? Were you? Ne- I think what, I think you're very nervous. To to be honest with you, you never know whether you're good enough to be at, the, at that level yeah. in that company. Bear in mind, where I used to work was Brent, which incorporates Wembley. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've worked at Wembley as a porter as a 14 year old yeah. um, in the stadium in the stadium wow. on match day international days um, I lived in the borough from the age of 5 to 21 um, and to be honest with you it's one of those you think am I good enough at this level and then you sit on a table and four years earlier you're an electrician in the same borough four years later you're in an England squad and with Brian Robson Peter Shill and people yeah. you, you watch on telly yeah. revere in many ways you know so um, it was very daunting and yeah. make no mistake Was it easy because you'd made the step up from non-league to like one of the top divisions then was it not so much of a jump in logic to go play for England like you've been used to a massive jump or? No you know, in many ways it wasn't because I never sort of went through the league so I went from mm. a non-league to you know top. left back as such to someone that was catapulted straight in and after one reserve game I was on the substitutes bench for Coventry uh, after the next game I was put straight in the first team and never really come out again you know yeah, what I mean yeah. um, and after less than two years at Coventry I moved to Nottingham Forest which was another step upwards yeah. in, in many ways you know mm-hmm. uh, working for the most iconic manager British football's ever had what was it like the first time you met Clough what was it worrying it's scary you know <laughs> yeah. he, he scares the life out of everybody to be fair you know he's such his personality is as strong as any personality I've ever known when he walks into a room people nigh on stood to attention of yeah. his pomp when he come in and the press were on, on tender hawks with him, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was quite incredible to, to be around him. I was fortunate enough to have eight years with him, yeah. from a 23-year-old to a 31-year-old. So, And, you know, we had some decent times together, you know, we won some trophies and some silverware, but you've only got to look at his CV as a whole across all yeah. the clubs he's been at. He's been sensational. Didn't he, like, call you down at the hotel the night before a game for a pint before a game? He always used to, yeah, every Friday night. You know, he was big on sort of team spirit and the team being relaxed and he used to ring around the rooms. All the the squad used to come down. You have to come down and, you know, you could drink whatever you wanted to drink. You know, some boys had a pint of lager, some had half a Guinness, some, you know what I mean? So, to be fair, I was one of those. On the odd occasion, I had half a Guinness, but it was never really one for me. It was almost had a mentality that... I probably weren't good enough to be in the company that I was in as a footballer unless I'd done absolutely everything. So unless yeah. I trained better than they did, I ate better, I slept better, and that yeah. mentality stayed with me through my whole career. Yeah. Was there ever a moment in your career, because you were in the PFA team of the year five years in a row, was there ever a moment you th- where you thought, I am a professional footballer, I deserve to be here? Did it, that mentality ever change? Like? I'm very, very fortunate that the answer to that question is no. And that's probably the one thing that drove me on. And the one thing that drove me on to play until I was a 40-year-old was the fact of I always felt as though, bizarrely, that the game owed me five years because I'd missed it at the start. Oh, right, yeah. mm. So because I didn't come in until I was 21, by the time I got into my late 20s, early 30s, 
I had no mentality that I was going to stop at 35, which was yeah. the, the pension age of footballers and whatever. I almost thought to myself, I'm going to 40. And, and yeah. it was almost unshakable. And when I played for West Ham and broke my shin bone twice in one season, there was no way I was fortunate. I was helped along the way by words from Harry Redknapp. But there was no real suggestion in my mind that, ah, this is the end of my career, I'll stop playing now. You know, yeah, yeah. It was, no, I'm keep going. And it disappoints me with modern day players now. They think they get into their 30s and it's old. I, you know, people, uh, this player or that player's 32, 33, he's old. I'm thinking, there's another seven years in you, yeah. if you want it. Yeah, yeah. You played for England at 37, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Um, rewinding the clock back, the 1991 FA Cup final is probably one of the most iconic FA Cup finals in the 90s. Um, what are your memories that day in the tunnel? Do you remember Gaza bouncing off the walls? Yeah, I mean, you know, Gaza was all over the gaff, to be fair, that day. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt he's been, you know, by far the most talented individual I've ever played alongside, you know. Yeah. Um, but that day he was so hyperactive, it was frightening. And, and to be to be blunt, he should have been sent off on two occasions yeah, yeah, before yeah. he was carried off on a stretcher. Yeah. And he's ended up hurting himself badly, to be fair. Yeah. Um, I Did only anyone s- have a word with him and go... Yeah, we did. We said, keep going. (laughs) I only saw it from red eyes. I wanted him sent off, um, you know, and Gaza distracted was good for us in many ways, you know, and to be fair, Gaza getting sent off and us scoring, I don't really think we played after that, if I'm being honest with you, you know, it wasn't the greatest of games. Remembered for Gaza getting sent off and two poor challenges and maybe a free kick and a Tottenham victory there. On and beyond that, I'm, I'm not remembering, and a penalty saved by the goal, our goalkeeper. On and beyond that, I'm not seeing a great deal, and it's a real disappointment because we we went to the final, and it was the only competition Brian Clough hadn't won. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was it was something that I, as a captain, wanted to deliver to him to say, look, this is the missing one in, in Europe. Did you? Because um, I watched that free kick yesterday on YouTube. That so you smack it in the top corner, and then you just. Mm. Your face is like, there's no smile, there's no, it's just arms in the air. Was there any kind of, I've just scored at Wembley, this is a joyful experience, or you're just so psyched up for the whole thing? What's going on in your head at that point? Solely this, to be honest with you, that was in the 15th minute of the game. I've got another 75 minutes to defend. You know, if that was the last minute of the game and made it 2 0, you'd have seen a celebration like you've never seen. (laughs) When you know it's almost. I, I sort of had the psyche and the mentality that said, what's the point in celebrating now? Nothing's won. Yeah. yeah. Simple as that. But before the game, uh, Clough and Venables walking onto the pitch, your captain, right, just behind Clough, mm-hmm. and he's holding hands with Terry Venables walking out. Did you did you clock that and think, that's that's weird? No, I clocked it and thought, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you've worked with, with the great man for so long, every day was different, mate. <laughs> So there was nothing that happened in, in our working life that you yeah. thought, well, that, that surprised me when it comes to, to Brian. You know what I mean? Incredible. Yeah. You played alongside Roy Keane. Did you, yeah. did you see him coming, coming, coming through the ranks and think, He's, we're similar, we've got that same kind of will mm. to win and um, see some of yourself in Roy? I saw a really good player. Uh, I've got to say, he was, at the time, our standout player um, in a team that weren't playing great, I've got to say. He joined us from from Cove Ramblers, and I was injured at the time and didn't even know he'd signed. Mm. We played, I think he made his debut away at Liverpool, um, 
I hadn't seen him on the training pitch because I was injured. I didn't even know him, never even met him. And when I spoke with a physio the morning after the game, he said, oh, who played right side midfield? I was talking about the Liverpool side yeah. and expecting him to say Ray Houghton. He said, Roy Keane. I said, Roy Keane, never heard of him before. And then we got on the subject and I realised he was talking about this fellow Roy Keane <laughs> had played for us and not Liverpool. So obviously subsequently met him after that and, and I think Roy stayed for, for two or three years, can't remember how long, but he had a he had a will to win as a young man. He had a strong belief in himself and his ability was incredible. He played central defence or central midfield and wherever you put him he was the best player. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Did um then you go from one great manager, Brian Clough? to another one, Bobby Robson. Mm. They must have very different approaches to management. Yeah, they did, but they're all... They made you, both made you feel kind of... Yeah, it, they had slightly different approaches, but they both had the same, I think, enthusiasm for football and love for the yeah. game. You know, Bobby Robson was just filled the place, filled with emotion and positivity and almost a father figure type, you know yeah. what I mean? But Brian had some, the pair of them had so much knowledge. Brian wouldn't coach you hours upon end, you know what I mean? It would be a, a solitary word in the dressing room at half time or whatever that inspired you to do so, yeah. you know? And um, more subtleties, if you like, and not sort of hour upon hour on the coaching pitch, you know? It's work it out for yourself, yeah. type of mentality. But both of them had a real love for the game. And, Inspiration for the game. Who was who would have been your favourite? Who was your favourite kind of manager out of the two? Well, probably I worked for Brian for longer, and yeah. he had probably the biggest influence on me over, you know, between the ages of twenty three to thirty one. He's the bulk of your footballing career in many ways for a lot of people. Um, but I've been so fortunate to work with and under some brilliant managers. You know. I, and, and all of them will give you something and all of them you'll look at and think, you know what, I wouldn't do it that way. You know, no matter who they are, some of them you look and say, I wouldn't do it that way, but I would do it that way. And yeah. you take something from all of them, for yeah. good and bad, you know, from, you know, I've worked with Bobby, Brian Clough, Kevin Keegan, Kenny Diglish, uh, Harry Redknapp, uh, David Nell, Capello, you know, some real, real top names yeah. in our profession. and. If you can't learn from all of these people, you as an individual are not doing something right. It's yeah. not them. Yeah. Um, let's turn our attention to Italia 90. We wanted to ask you, because um, one game into the World Cup, we, sw we switched our formation, didn't we? You went to kind of um, left wing back. Mm. We had a sweeper system. Like, yeah. How were the players consulted about that? How did that change? Um, I think a lot of it was, from memory, uh, Chris Waddle was was very instrumental in that. I think he was playing a similar type of way at Marseille at the time. And, you know, we weren't playing particularly well as a team. And, and for, for whatever reason, whether there was an injury involved, I think Brian Robson got injured uh, during the tournament. But um, I think with conversation, we ended up changing formations, which absolutely sorted the squad brilliantly. You know what I mean? Des Walker was was arguably one of the best central defenders in the world at the time. Gascoigne was, was one of the emerging best talents in the world at the time. Uh, Shilton was, was probably at the back end of his career, being a 40-year-old, but an outstanding international goalkeeper with vast experience. Lineker was one of the best goal scorers you have, and you had Brian Robson in your squad, and Platt was emerging, and one or two others, and Beardsley. So 
we had some real talent in the squad and you know, three five two just suited us really. Yeah. When you hear the words Italian United, mm. do you see the it as a glorious tournament or because it ended in the way it did, do you see it as a bad memory in your career? Uh real strange one really. If I look back now, I, I look back and, and view it with greater good than bad. Yeah. It was the only World Cup I ever f- featured in over yeah. twelve years of international football. Um it gave me some fantastic memories, you know, for good and bad, and and probably missing the penalty give give me probably the great greatest learning lesson of my career, and as in, and it probably inspired me in many ways. I think when we come back from the World Cup, we finished on the fourth of July, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rang Brian Clough up on the fifth of July when I got home and said, "Is it all right to have a couple of weeks off?" He said, no, (laughs) Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, Went straight in, flew to Sweden, went on pre-season, done all that. So I come back under a cloud, I'd missed a penalty at a World Cup. And the next season was the best season I've ever had, where a lot of the squad come back with the media saying how tired they would be and all this. And and they they believed the hype, if you like. And probably I had the best season I've ever had because I had something to prove. So yeah. every ground I went to, uh, there was a, a rousing chorus of Stuart Pearce is a German, you know, which inspired me a touch more. <laughs> so for me, it was a great learning curve. Yeah. And then when I took charge of an England uh, squad, the under-21s, for instance, we practiced penalties after every training session two yeah. years out from a major tournament yeah. where you might take one. Mm. So that's that's why... Did you not practice them at all at Italian? No, no, it was all ad hoc. You, you might practice the odd one, but there's nothing structured about it. And then when you compare that to 19 years later, when I took the under-21s to the final, Joe Hart had, had faced 350 penalties in training, yeah. so I knew his save ratio was 17%. I knew James Milner's scoring ratio was 82%. Yeah. I knew that James Milner's uh, you know, scored more going that way than he did in that direction. Mm. and. We'd done the stats yeah. to the nth degree, and then we win a penalty shootout, and it gives you. You look back and you think, the only reason I've done that is because I missed a penalty yeah, nineteen yeah. seasons ago yeah. and drew yeah. the, the positive from a negative, if you like. So, yeah. when in that match, the Germany game, what point does does penalties even enter your head during the game? As soon as you hit extra time, it does. Does it? Without a doubt. Yeah, it does with me. You you've got to be very naive. So you'd to have think it against soon, Belgium as well. You've been thinking definitely. Right? Yeah, mm. I think as soon as you you're nearing the end of full time or just into extra time, definitely you can see it in the way teams play. They play more cautiously. Yeah. In the second half of extra time, they yeah. almost say, "Well, it's going to be penalties." Yeah, let's settle with. Um, and and, and are you looking around the team and thinking it's going to be him. No, you just look at yourself and you say, am I prepared to put myself up to take a penalty if the selection order wasn't in place? This is why when whenever I prepared a team internationally, there was no, I'll take one, I'll take one. That wasn't the case. Yeah. I had a, a sheet of paper statistically in my pocket that said who were the best number one to 23 mm. on yeah. my list. And because I'd studied world penalties for a bit of an anorak in that respect, <laughs> you know, the most important penalty is number one, and the second most important penalty is number four. Yeah. Uh, so, and then you work accordingly through your squad listing. So, yeah. it was almost an exact science rather than a leave it to chance mentality. Yeah. But w- when I took penalties in, in both the uh, tournaments, it, it was very ad hoc. And if you look, 
most of the people that had missed penalties eventually for England, um, maybe some of them, I would say, weren't natural penalty takers. Gareth Southgate never taken a penalty, yeah. David Batty, I think, yeah. Ince had missed yeah. one. All of these players were never tried and trusted as, yeah. as penalty takers. They were just ad hoc volunteers on number six, seven, eight, yeah. whatever it may be. And that, that can't be right. Yeah. Did you practice penalties more after Italia 90s? Was it like something you... I, no, I always did anyway. Yeah. I, I used to practice. I was fortunate at, at uh, Nottingham Forest. Mark Crossley was my goalie there and he was a fantastic penalty saver. So I used to take 10 penalties after every session with him, certainly on Friday. And I used to tell him what direction I was going. So I thought if he saves them and he knows which way to go... Um, mm. Fine. If I score and he knows which way to go, I've scored a good penalty. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And what was the first penalty like back at Forest, like in the league? Do, do you remember it? Um, the, the following season, I wasn't on penalties actually. Nigel Clough was. Right. So the following season, I, I ended up scoring sixteen goals with no penalties. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was. Uh, yeah, Nigel used to take, but for me, it weren't. It weren't a case. It's more importantly. The fact, if, if you miss a penalty, you've got to stand up and take another one. You know yeah. what I mean? Does all of a sudden, do I become a bad penalty taker? Yeah, because yeah, I missed sure. a penalty. So when you missed that penalty in World Cup 90, mm. what happened? What did you do that evening? Like how? I what, was pulled after? in for a drugs test. So it took me two and a half hours to give a sample. So I was at the stadium two and a half hours. On your own? Uh, yes, in the, in the changing rooms. I went into the drug testing room, two Germans, me and Shields. They had just won the semi-final of the World Cup. Yeah. We had just lost it. Shields walked in, give a quick wee and walked out. I sat facing two German players for an hour and a half, maybe, um, <laughs> drinking loads of water, trying How to get a sample. They were exemplary in their behaviour and taught me a great lesson once again. They sat yeah. there... If you walked in a room, you wouldn't know who won who lost out of the pair of us. They didn't say a word to each other. Mm. Now, that might be the German mentality, look. The Do you know who it was? Out, Do you remember? Big, no idea. Mm. But a few years later, when I scored against Spain, when everyone jumped on each other, I walked straight over to the Spanish player who'd missed a penalty and consoled yeah. him because of what happened to me yeah. by the German players. So. And what do you say in that situation? What kind of... Um, there's very little you can say basically you know exactly how much it hurts probably you know when Gareth missed and I was in the same in the squad with him it's I wouldn't say it's nice but when someone says don't worry about it whatever and they've not walked the walk that you have you yeah. know full well you've missed a penalty that has cost your country dearly yeah. so um, you've just got to learn by it you know and be yeah. humble with it as well when you when you do well and when you do yeah. badly Let's skip on to Euro 92. Obviously, Graham Taylor comes in. Not much happens at 92, aside from mm. you getting headbutted by Basil Bolly mm. and playing on. I wondered about that. Like, Do you think you've got a much higher pain threshold than, uh, than other players? We talked about like playing against Southampton for West Ham and breaking a leg and mm. trying to play on. Uh, I, I don't know, to be quite honest with you. What I would say is probably some of that come from my dad. Don't show him your hurt was the message that he used yeah. to as an 8-year-old, a 9-year-old, an 11-year-old. You don't show the opposition you're hurt. That was the stock thing that he used to say yeah. to me. So um, you don't show them you're hurt. You don't show them you're tired. You know, so your socks are never around your ankles. They're always pulled up. You, you, you yeah. never, at the end of extra time, you never sit down and lie down. You stand up to, to convey yeah. a message to the opposition. I'm still yeah, fresh. Yeah. I'm still ready to go. And, you know, 
the culture of football's changed and society's changed a great deal now, but that's how it was with me and that's how it was with, with you know, my my pet, my parents and, and my brothers as well. That puzzle bowl, I watched that recently. He really, I mean, you have mm. much, you go down. Is it difficult not to just want to knock the guy out? No, because you'd get sent off for your country then, you know what I mean? I, I'm fortunate that I've got a mentality that I can portray an outward demeanour, let's say, yeah. of raging and out of control. Yeah. I, I'm totally in control, if you know right, what yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it can be for show in many ways, yeah. you know. Um, to have an effect on the game or, or the situation. Now, he headbutted me because he saw me catch the winger earlier on yeah. Yeah. Now, the repercussions of that is he veered off and run back to his position. I went to Onglemar, who I was marking for the rest of the game, and said, you done that? Which he looked at me in sheer terror and said, no, 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 it was him, him, him. I said, no, you done it. To, because I couldn't yeah. affect him, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I could affect him. So it's just <laughs> thinking on your face. the game? Yeah, the quiet game. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you've got to use all of those things. I mean, it would have been easy for me to chase the kid outside the box, do yeah. something stupid, get sent off, we're yeah. out of the tournament and it's down to me. Now, you've got to channel it in the other ways. The yeah. other way was, look, hey, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take that out on you, you've just done that to me. Yeah. You, uh, so it helped my job. Because you've got that control, that kind of controlled kind of anger. You, I've read that you've got kind of, you had a very clear like routine before the game and mm. you very psych yourself up in a very specific way. Was it all kind of like a, a step, steps to get yourself in this mentality for, for yeah. the match? Yeah, I'm, I'm very structured as a person anyway and that, that was all, all part of the preparation as I said earlier. You eat, sleep, and train better than the fellow you're playing against. Yeah. And I, it was building blocks of confidence for me. So, what would you do before a match? What was your. As a pre build up? Yeah. Um, I'd start getting unchanged. If it was a three o'clock kickoff, I'd start getting unchanged at um, probably about quarter past two. Uh, from quarter past two, I, I would uh, be jogging up and down the corridor, loosening off there. I had a, a, at 2.30, I would be kicking against the wall with a ball. Block tackling against a wall, uh, 20 to 3. I never went out on the pitch. At 20 to 3, I'd be stretching uh, groins and hamstrings with the physio. So I had a real defined yeah. routine to what I wanted to do. Never used to go out on the pitch before and warm up. Did any manager go? Graham yeah. Taylor. Did it? Did, for England. He said, look, you're the captain of England. I'd like you to go and warm up. I said, look, I, I don't really like to. I, you know, I sort of give him the analogy of a boxer. You never see a boxer go in the ring and warm up, do you? And then come back out and do the walk in. So, yeah. and I used to see my teammates come in either baking hot or sweating or yeah. wet through mm -hmm. and then have to go back out again. And I thought, you know what, I'm not sure. And Kenny Hibbert, an old player, when I was at Coventry, said to me once, I, I said to him, Kenny, do you go out and warm up? He said, no. He said, I'll get paid hour and a half to run around, no more. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, you know what, I can see the sense in that. Yeah. You know? Um, so that, that, that was me, really. You know, After I'll, the physio, what happens that? So that's... Yeah, then I'm getting changed into my kit, smelling salt, splash of water on your face, all of that is a real defined thing. Yeah. And then yeah. the other players would come in, and at Nottingham Forest, everyone sat and said nothing. Really? He sat there, and he put the ball on a towel in the middle of the room, and he said, that's what we play with, go and get it. 
Wow. John Moncur told us that you kept a clock throughout your career that you'd keep on your kind of yeah. in the dressing room. And he said that once he, he played with it. Yeah, he did. Before a game. Yeah. <laughs> that not go down too well? Not so, no, not so good. <laughs> um, so was it the same clock that you kept for like 20 years? It wasn't a clock in the dressing room, so oh, I had right. to bring my own. Right. So I used to put it next to me. So if I was in the dressing room and had a clock, I wouldn't need my own. Yeah, yeah. But I obviously... In West Ham, we had no clock in the dressing room, and because I was regimented, I needed my own clock. Yeah, and have you still got that clock? No, no, no. I don't know why I'm to that clock. I probably threw it at Monker. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Graham Taylor there. So obviously, we didn't qualify for USA USA '94. Mm. Where do you think the, the the blame lies there? Would you, it seems like so you made with some the decisions. No, with no. the players. We when you look, we had a world class goalkeeper in Shilton. We had a world class centre forward in Lineker. Um, we had Terry Butcher, who was an outstanding central defender. Mark, uh, Mark Wright done extremely well at the 1990 World Cup and tailed off a little bit. I just don't think he had the wealth of talent available mm. to him, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. And then Shearer hadn't emerged on the scene at the time and Gascoigne was injured because of 91. And I, I think everything contrived that sometimes you've got to be lucky to take over a squad of players yeah. at the right time, you know? If you roll a clock forward to 95, 96, when Venables took over, all of a sudden he's got Shearer, a world-class striker, Sheringham had arrived, Dave Seaman has emerged in 96 as an, a world-class goalkeeper, uh, Incy was playing in Milan, Platt was, you know, a recognised international star and, and so on and so forth, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about Euro 96. So out goes Graham Taylor, in comes Terry Venables, a home tournament for the first time since 66. Um, but then Graham Asso kind of slips in front of you yeah. at one point. We had Lasso on the podcast and he said you were very nice to him and professional about yeah. kind of like having yeah. that place over. Were you worried about losing your spot for Euro 96? Yeah, you're damn right. The first conversation I had with Terry Venables when he took, took over was saying to me, look, um, Graham Asso is going to be the left back. Um, what your thoughts? I think he wanted me politely to, to say I'll, I'll retire from international football but didn't yeah. want to cut my legs off and, and I can quite understand that, good management. So I just said to him, fine, if you think he's your first choice, no problem. If you think I'm good enough to be in the squad, I'll be there. Uh, which happened, I mean, I had to sit out and watch Graham and support Graham from behind. The good thing was, you know, I had 60 odd caps, I think, at the time. Um, so I had no real axe to grind, you know, so it, there was no, there was no need for me to to be detrimental to Graham because he was playing better than I was in that position, mm. you know. Mm. So I just had to sit and be patient, and I got my chance. Graham broke his ankle in the April, and I got back in the England team, leading into '96, probably because of my patience. The year, and you do ask the question: How many players with sixty odd caps would sit there and yeah. be a bit part player? Mm. I know. Beckham would be and did mm -hmm. because yeah. he, they've done it. How many others? Well, maybe not too many. So obviously, in my world, don't mean a great deal to you to play for your country. Then, yeah. yeah. Did you feel there was a lot of pressure going into Euro '96? The press definitely because we were playing badly leading into the tournament. I thought um, we weren't playing at full tilt. We didn't start the tournament particularly well, yeah. and it wasn't as till probably a penalty saved by the goalkeeper and a Gascoigne goal that illuminated the tournament and got yeah. us rolling, you know? Yeah. What about Hong Kong beforehand? Did you manage to have a couple of beers um, on that infamous trip? No, strangely enough, um, 
I've always had this mentality if I want to go and get drunk I'll go and get drunk in a quiet bar somewhere <laughs> not when I'm on an international <laughs> <laughs> That's a strange mentality yeah, good rule exactly <laughs> so I, I probably over 12 years may have had a drink on three occasions internationally you know mm. what I mean um, on the night we played Hong Kong 11 drew 1-1 against literally a scratch team we were awful come back there was talk about them going out and having a few drinks and whatever. My teammate was Steve Stone, who was a forest player at the time, and he said, oh, the players go, what do you think? I said, listen, Stone, I've been around it all the time. The press will be all over this place. They'll be waiting for stories. We've played badly, blah, blah, blah. He looked at me and went, I won't wake you when I come in. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the door and off he went. And to be fair, it's no surprise to me what happened. Yeah. But in many ways, maybe that just galvanised the squad. It bonded them yeah. all together. Well, we come back from there. The headlines were horrific, to be yeah. honest with you. You know what I mean? For, for a team organising to go, it's, it's fun looking back now, but when you were there at the time and you're prepping for a major tournament, it's horrific, to be yeah. fair, for the manager. You know, he had to deal with that and, and whatever. And he dealt with it brilliantly, to be fair. He, he galvanised the group together, you know, with one thing and another. And to be fair, fair from there, that, that sort of... It, it united everybody. And yeah. once the team started playing well, it united the fans of the country. Yeah. yeah. So that was the Holland game, right? It started really kicking yeah. on. Yeah, And then you faced Spain. Mm. Now, before... You've had six years since Italian 90. When you go into your 96, do you think at all about the fact you might have to take a penalty? Not really. It was just a, a matter of fact. If, if, if there's penalties to be taken, I'm going to volunteer my services to do so because I yeah. think whatever given time that game stops, if there's 11 people on the pitch, I will be in the top five yeah. of penalty takers. And do you, did you realise, because obviously that iconic celebration afterwards, it showed how much it kind of meant to you. Did you realise before it kind of what a cathartic moment it might be if you scored or were you just thinking about the game? I didn't really think about it to be honest with you it was just I didn't even know if I'd be taking a penalty that's how ad hoc it was a few people practice penalties you know if you want to yeah. practice do so if you don't you don't and then we, we got to the end of extra time and we all come together in the centre circle and I went over to Terry and I thought if I leave this to chance he's not going to pick me to take a penalty because yeah. of my history Yeah. so I just said to him I'll, I'll take the third penalty and he looked at me and went, are you fucking sure? <laughs> <laughs> I went, yeah, I think I am anyway. I was before you said that. <laughs> so, uh, and it just went from there. You What's know, it like what waiting was, to yeah. take a penalty? The walk's probably the worst thing. The wait and the walk, you know. Uh, the, the German game was a different one a couple of days later because I thought to myself, my plan was... The German goalkeeper would have watched us take penalties three to four days earlier. He would have seen where we've taken. So all I had to do was sit and wait and watch the German goalkeeper when he, when he faced Teddy's penalty and he take, faced Shearer's penalty. And he went the same way as he would have seen on the, uh. on the thing. So once he'd done that, as soon as he'd done that, I knew all I've got to do is change sides. And he went the same way as he'd seen on the video for all the penalties. Oh. 
You've got to think, my son. <laughs> You've got to think. Where was this insight in '96? Um, so then, I, I wanted to ask about the, just quickly. Sorry, the walk. The walk to the penalty against mm. Spain. So walk, were you thinking about Italian '90 walking up there, or were you just no, focused? No, I thought you know we're we're in a we're in a quarter final. We have a great opportunity. We we were we were not the better side against no. Spain. I think Spain was slightly better side than we were. Couldn't make the breakthrough. Um, so you end up going, we didn't concede over two hours, which my job as a defender is to help that be the case. And then you end up going to penalties and you think, listen, there's no way I'm leaving a teammate. You know, um, I'm going to stand on the halfway line and let someone go up that yeah. has not got a recognised penalty taking record. You know, yeah. it's just not right. And the celebration, when it goes in, this seems to be a moment where it kind of it hits you the enormity mm. of like the, the catharsis. Like, what was that like? Was mm. it like just pure elation? Yeah, nothing planned, nothing thought out in many ways. It was just an emotion. When you when I look back now, I'm like, yeah, bloody hell, what's going on here? <laughs> Can you remember it, or do you know? Is it no, just... it's it's not there now. To be fair, but I think. When I walked up to take that penalty, I could feel the nervousness in the crowd. I think there was yeah. everyone to yeah. a person that was was more nervous than I was yeah. in many ways. You know what I mean? Which which is nice because uh, you know yeah. they're with you. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah, I think there was more nerves in the terraces than with myself. You know, yeah. it was as though, well, what choice have I got? I've got to take a penalty because I'm one of the better penalty takers. So get yeah. on with it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, different case of Germany in the semi-final obviously you take a penalty there so much more relaxed yeah the walk up the way you hit it the celebration yeah. probably you know the reaction from the first one that was for that game that was that cleared a, a ghost of the past if you yeah. like it wasn't thought out but maybe it did and then just because I'd sort of done my homework and pre-guessed a German goalkeeper knowing how thorough they would be so, as I said to you before, I had those two penalties to watch, and I thought if he goes the same way as he's yeah. seen on telly, all I've got to do is change direction, I score. And the five that took the five that took scored, Southgate misses. It was absolutely exemplary. I thought the penalties from yeah. both teams, yeah. the Germans especially, going second, chasing the game every time, knowing full well if they miss one, we're yeah. we're one in front and whatever. And so, when Southgate misses, did you? Go over to him. Yeah, yeah, of course. And listen, we spent the night, sat at a, a dinner table, drinking beers and drinking brandies, you know what I mean? Afterwards, yeah. when we got back to the hotel, and what can you say to any individual? You know, we'd all, we'd all suffered the same fate. Tony Adams uh, was a great leveller. He was fantastic in the tournament. We were sat there, and Gareth had his head down in the bar, and, and Tony walked in larger than life. <laughs> And uh, I think he said to him, get your head up, you bleeding German. You know you've let us down. (laughs) Words like that, you know what I mean? That just broke the ice and, um, you know, it was one of those, look, let's just get on with it. Is it true you took Southgate to the Sex Pistols halfway through Euro 96? After the Spain game, the Pistols were playing... um, We played Saturday against Spain. The Pistols were playing on the Sunday at Finsbury Park. Yeah. Um, And Terry said, look, you, you can have Sunday off, you know what I mean? So... You know, Gaza went fishing, a couple of them went home and whatever, and I earmarked the pistols. I thought, shit, I'm going to miss the pistols, I'm with England. And all of a sudden he said, you can have the day off. So I said, well, do you mind if I go to the sex pistol? Yeah, yeah, fine. Because he'd given everyone off, he couldn't really say no. So um, myself, 
Gareth and about four or five members of staff went. Fantastic, yeah. brilliant. Did you get much attention? I mean, if I was at a gig and halfway through the year in '86 and you and Gareth Southgate turned up, it was yeah. um, No, it weren't too bad, to be fair. I, mean, I think. Um, I think we watched some of it from on the stage. Oh, right. We introduced them. Oh, did you? <laughs> I mean, Gareth. I don't think he'd ever been to a gig before. <laughs> what introduction? And I dragged it, yeah. And then, and then we went and met the band before, and then we went out and introduced the band, and then they come on. I think we watched most of it from sort of in the wings of the yeah. stage, you know yeah. what I mean? Which was brilliant. Iggy Pop was on, and Stiff Little Fingers were on, so it's it's my cup of tea. Yeah. yeah. Was it Gareth's? No, no, I don't think he's ever been to a concert again, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you didn't retire after your 1996, you carried on a bit. Um, well, I did. I did retire on the coach when we left Wembley. I went really? on the microphone and said, look, you know, this is, thanks very much. I've retired from international football, it's been brilliant, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that was that, and Terry finished then. And then I had a phone call that pre-season from Glenn Hoddle saying, I see you've retired from international. Is there a reason behind that? I said, well, not really. I'm 35 years old, seemed the right time. He said, well, look, you know, I still think you're good enough, you know. Uh, I said, look, if you think I'm good enough, I'll, I'll be there. Yeah. Simple as that. And then off at the back end of him, I don't think I retired again. And then I had a phone call from, uh, from Kevin when I was 37 and just joined West Ham so I thought he was ringing me up about Rio or, or Lampard or one of those yeah. to pick my brains and he said look you know if I picked you would you come I said of course yeah. did you see your England caps as your proudest achievement in your career without a doubt captain in England if, if someone says greatest achievement that I, in, in my professional career captain in England is, is stand out in, in a team sport that I, I like to be a team player yeah Having the honour of captain in your country and leading your country out, there's nothing better. What is and what is the ultimate pinnacle of your time with England? What was the number one moment you think that was? Um, probably leading England out. I think it was against France. First time I was captain would have been really high on the list. First cap against Brazil, hundred thousand at Wembley was a big one. You know, so it weren't a backwater. You, you're playing an international yeah. game or anywhere away from home. It was Brazil at home, Scotland away first two. So fantastic baptism, um, and probably the performance against Holland and the atmosphere within the stadium at Wembley. If I had to pick, you know, two or three yeah. things out, they're the things that, that I would take from it. You know, the, the atmosphere in Euro '96 was, was something I'll never forget. If you could change one result for England. Would you go for, well, any, but would you go semi-final? Two semi-final. I, I've lost in two semi I've only been to three tournaments and lost in two semi-finals. Which one would you prefer to have won in? Uh, Euro 96, strangely enough. I, the World Cup's bigger, even if I knew I was going to go on to be a World Cup winner, I'd have to take that on magnitude. But the excitement and what it would mean to our country as a footballing country to have gone through that tournament in Euro 96 and, and won that tournament with what the final would have looked like, God only knows, what the yeah. celebrations oh. afterwards would have looked like, God only knows. <laughs> but, you know, it would have been it would have been just incredible. I mean, it, it was by far the best tournament or the best footballing experience I've ever had in my life yeah. being involved in that tournament. Does those three weeks just feel like an amazing kind of... Because even to me, I was 13 or whatever, mm. it felt like the different country, it felt like the whole yeah. country. There was a feel Did that bleed into the team? Yeah, without a doubt. We, we didn't experience that in, in Italy or didn't experience it in Sweden because yeah. of, we were 
out the country, cocoon. Yeah. Italy was my first tournament, so you're nervous as a kitten, and then come back from the tournament, and think, bloody hell, we got to the semi-final, almost. You yeah. Know? Um, we didn't do particularly well in 1992, and then my next one was 96, but that, you're at home, you've got television beaming at you, you've got newspapers there, you come out the hotel and there's English fans lining the thing, you know, it's quite amazing. Yeah. Um, final few questions. Do you have any mementos from your career around the house? Is there anything you've no, kept? No, no, I never put anything on show. Not even a... Have you got, like, a shirt from Italian 90? I, I've got one picture on the wall of myself, and it's it's me putting the ball down on the penalty spot in Euro 96, and all you can see is, is the view of me putting the ball down. You just see the top of my head and the name on the shirt. That's the only thing oh, I have okay. on show. Everything is put away. I just... I, I love going, I'm a weirdo like this, I love going to people's houses and looking at their memorabilia, you know, players or shirts or caps. You know, I went to Kevin Keegan's house once, it's brilliant. I love looking at it, fantastic. Never really, it just don't work with me. It's as though that was yesterday, it's finished, you yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. I just put everything away and literally in my office I got that one picture just bent over putting the ball down because... Maybe when I look at that picture, it, it, it symbolises a lot more than just, oh, it's a penalty for England. If most people walked in the house, they'd probably look at that and say, I know exactly when that was, yeah. what stadium it was at. I, I speak at conferences now and do leadership and motivational speaking. And uh, when I look at, if, if I put the steel of, of maybe the celebration from Euro 96 after mm. Spain on the board and said to a room of people and said, could you tell me when that was and a little story that goes behind it? Most of them will probably turn around and say, yes, that was Euro 96 when you scored the penalty against Spain. Why was it relevant? Well, you missed one six years earlier, so it was this. Mm. I was in the stadium that day, actually, and they didn't tell a story. There's a very few pictures in sport that you can actually show yeah. still. Gaz are lying down, mm. people flashing things. Yeah. But on them, on and beyond that, in football, there's very few pictures yeah. you can say, yeah, I know when that was, you know what I mean? Yeah. And with that with me, that's probably the only reason I put that picture on my wall, because I know that the hardship the and year before it. and the sacrifice went in waiting for Graham Lasseau or trying to get past Graham Lasseau to get in the team that symbolised that moment of me yeah. putting the ball on the penalty spot. That's the story behind it for me, in my yeah. world. For everybody else, it's not. It's scoring a penalty against Spain. For me, it's the journey. Yeah, yeah. You get one second of, of fame for all the hardship and work you put in for a whole calendar year. Yeah, it came down to that moment. Yeah. The pressure. Um, and then, so this is a 90s podcast. What's the best song of the 90s? Uh, football's coming home. <laughs> I mean, that was... I remember Skinner and Badil come to the hotel before the tournament and they played it and we all sat there and thought... What a load of shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? The first time you hear it, you know, typical football song, blah, blah, blah. By the end of the tournament, in my car, I've got it on my tape player and afterwards and everything. It was it was just the anthem of the whole tournament, you know, as You're the tournament it. grew, everyone. So we, after the Spain game, myself and Dave Seaman went and done an interview somewhere in the stadium. I don't know where it was, but somewhere just off the tunnel up in one of the interview rooms, sealed in, you know, no windows, no nothing. And we sat there being interviewed, literally as we've come off the pitch and whatever. 
and you could feel the stadium rocking and everyone to a person singing that song. It was amazing. If you hear that song now, do you just get taken back to your United? Yeah, yeah, it did. Gives me tingles to be quite honest. Do you have family over for an England game in a World Cup or something? And do you put that someone beforehand? Maybe pop on an Italian ninety. No, I don't do that anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> in history now. And then we had a question on your tattoo. What, mm. what what's your tattoo? It's, it's an eagle with a sun behind it. But some people suggesting it's a porcupine. <laughs> you know. Um, I had a tattoo when tattoos were very unfashionable, you know what I mean? I had a crap haircut and still have <laughs> when these haircuts are really unfashionable and uh, that's how I live my life. I'm not a great lover of uh, celebrity, uh, never have been. And it, it amuses me actually. I had my tattoo done when I was 16, 17, I can't remember which. But um, it's interesting that now everybody's got a tattoo and if you haven't got one, it's, it's quite fashionable, possibly, or unfashionable, yeah. whichever it was. If I was a modern-day player, I wouldn't have a toe. No, yeah, you no. wouldn't. Did you nearly get the St George's flag instead? Yes, I went to, uh, we went to a tattoo artist in Hayes, and I wanted the cross flags of St George and the Union Jack, and that was shut, so we went somewhere else and <laughs> didn't specialise in flags, so I was just <laughs> hell-bent on getting a tattoo that day with four other mates. Oh, God. Um, and then final question that we ask everyone. If you could press a button and go back in time to the 1st of January 1990 and do it all again, mm. would you? Without a doubt, because that would mean that I was still playing football rather than attempting to talk about it. <laughs> you know, so your best days, I think, are when you, as a footballer, someone's trained as a footballer, your best days are when you're a player. That would transform me back to a time where I was still able to influence a football match as a player. Yeah. Wonderful. Stuart Pierce. Thank you. You're welcome. No problem. No missing from Stuart Pierce tonight. And what a magnificent gesture afterwards. Look at that marvellous. There we go. Stuart Pierce. I loved him. And I'm going to say, you know. Credit to him because he must have thought we were a bunch of fucking amateurs. <laughs> and he'd be Absolute right. Absolute amateurs. Three guys gathered around the corner of a long table with uh, an inability to record the interview. A souped up dictaphone. A souped up dictaphone and then asking him whether he had, can I remember his shirt sponsor at Nottingham Forest? <laughs> oh dear, what a wonderful man. Um, delighted to get him on. He was such a nice bloke and. Um, I don't know what he's up to now, but luckily we got in just before he left West Ham as well. Yeah, that's true. Promised if we'd spent another 15 minutes looking for those batteries, David Moyes would have been sacked. <laughs> right. Review haiku. A couple of really good ones this week. Firstly, this from Bobby Brown, 82. Right, left or centre, defender, midfield, forward, Alexanderson. Oh, I mean, there's no point in the next that, one. That is Rob so Brown. good. That's so good. Well, this, this, I enjoyed this. Listening to this is much better than not listening to this. Oh, so clever, clever. Not, not but, necessarily yeah, our wheelhouse, but uh, I mean, that would be good. The, the quality has really gone up in the last couple of weeks. I'll give them that. <laughs> uh, but it's got to be the Nicholas Alexanderson one. Congratulations, Rob Brown. You've won a Graham says Hitler's mug.
do get in touch. Now, to end, we pick the final song with the quiz. Now, seeing as Michael's on manager holiday, I've Googled 90s football trivia questions, and these are what came up. If you get it right, Chris, you will win. And you can choose the song. If you get it wrong, you lose, and I choose the song. Very easy. Lovely. Okay. Name the missing host city from Euro 96. London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield, Newcastle, and... Do you want the four options? I think I can get it. I think I can get it out. Just because I'm thinking of the titles of Euro 96, it would be Nottingham, wouldn't it? Did you didn't say Nottingham? I didn't say Nottingham. And that is the correct answer. Oh, yes, yes please. please. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. When I think of that Euro 96 titles, I think of not the Nottingham, the city ground. Do you? Terry, is it Terry Venable's face projected on a pitch? We've talked you about tell it before. Me. You tell me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, lovely bit of business. Well, there's not much I know about the music scene in Nottingham, but Can I know. Can I just what... say also, that question perfectly fits with the Stuart Pierce vibe of the episode. Oh, love. Is that why you picked it? No. <laughs> Well, there's not much I know about the uh, Nottingham music scene, but I am aware that Stuart Pearce and uh, Matt Ford, both Nottingham uh, legends, both big music fans, I believe they both love Oasis, so I'll probably go if she's electric. We'll be back next week with another guest. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. She's electric. She's in a family full of eccentrics. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.